You're listening to the Coastal Church Audio Podcast with Pastor Dave Coop. God thinks you look amazing, and uh, he's got an amazing, amazing love for you. And this month, we're talking about amazing grace. We've all heard the song, we've all sang it, and many famous musicians have sung it. We talked last week about Bono, how he sang at the concert here, and Willie Nelson has sung it at his concerts, and it was once on the top of the pop chart in the UK for six months, and so it's been around for literally hundreds of years. The reason it's around, because grace is an amazing topic. Now, we're only going to spend a month on it. We could spend years talking about amazing grace, but it's one of those core truths of Christianity that... We need to really discover, and then you have to keep going back and refreshing yourself in it, refreshing yourself in it, because it's really easy to get into the ditch of works. Our whole society is based on performance. That's how we get paid. That's how we get raises. That's how we make, make the team. That's how we value people is based on performance. Here's the way the world does it. Number one, you, they value based on performance. If you can score a lot of goals in hockey and uh, you can stand on your skates and, and, and do good at it, they'll pay you a lot of money for your performance. Or if you could sell things, you get paid for it. Or It's a performance-based world. And then comes character. Character is number two. If you've got good character, we want that. There's more and more an awareness of ethics in the workplace and so forth. And so we understand the value of character. And both those, performance and character, are earned. You, you work towards that. Then the last thing which the world doesn't talk a lot about is intrinsic value. You can't earn intrinsic value. It's not uh, something you can uh, just go and get. It's something that's given to you. And the intrinsic value you have was given to you by God the Father because you were created in his image. That's intrinsic value. It can never be reduced. It can never be destroyed. Yesterday, my daughter got married, and, and uh, I watched them put rings on each other's hands and and you know the ring had certain performance value this is my wedding ring it's got certain performance value in that it had a designer put diamonds in a certain place and uh, we had uh, we put the the wedding date guys it's a good idea we actually had that put in the in, in the ring I, I said highly suggest that I don't know what it is but some days we just really clue out and we can't remember the day we got married um, mine's actually pretty good because my wedding date is 5678. I was married on the, the fifth day of May, 1978. So that worked for me. Five, six, but that wasn't enough. I still had to write it in the, in there. So that's, that would be performance side of things. And that adds value to the ring. It makes it worth more. And there's a certain character value with it, which represents my, my marriage. It represents the covenant that I made. So there's character value to it, this ring. But, you know, there's also intrinsic value in this ring. Just the gold itself has certain intrinsic value. Uh, I could take this ring and melt it down, and that gold would still be worth, oh, well, now it's over $1,100 an ounce, and I was just talking to somebody who's going to go to $2,000 an ounce. So, uh, anyhow, it's, uh, it's got that intrinsic value. Never reduced, never destroyed. Gold is always worth it. No matter what happens, it goes through fire, goes through a lot of junk. It's still worth that. You have an intrinsic value in your life that no matter what you've gone through today, your intrinsic value can never be reduced. It can never be destroyed. You have this intrinsic value that God sees in your life. The world bases your value on performance, character, and then I don't think they even think about intrinsic value. God's exact opposite. Intrinsic value is first, then character, and then performance. They're all important, but God's order is different. That has a lot to do with grace. We're going to talk about grace this morning. Relaxing in God's grace. When you get the revelation 
of God's grace, that you are accepted, that you are loved, not based on your performance, you get to kind of just go like, whew, I don't have to stop performing to please God. You know what? You can't do anything more to make him love you more. You can't do anything bad to make him love you less. His love for you is steadfast. You can't do anything to make him love you more, and you couldn't do anything to make him love you less. When you leave this morning, you have come to church. You have sung praise and worship songs. You have lifted your hands. You have said a prayer. You have opened your Bible. You have been spiritual. It's a good thing. But you know when you leave, he's not going to love you more because you came to church this morning. You don't get an extra star today on your day. No, he loves you the same. So why do I come to church? Because it stirs up your love and he he talks to you. just want to make the point that his love for you is not based on your performance. It's so radical, it takes a while for us to get a heart around it and to, to really understand the concept of it and to embrace it. So we'll tackle it a number of times this month. Last week, we said grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. You can't repay it. You didn't deserve it. It's free. We talked about Mephibosheth, a guy in the Bible who received an amazing favor. His dad's name was Jonathan, and Jonathan and King David had made a covenant together. They were friends, blood brothers. And David remembers his friend Jonathan. Jonathan's dead, and he asked for Mephibosheth, his son, to be brought to him. He's living in the desert. He's a ruined life. And David restores to him all the wealth of that guy's grandfather and allows him to eat the king's table. He doesn't deserve any of it, but David gives it to him anyhow. That's a picture of grace. This morning, we're going to talk about a picture of grace from a very, very classic passage. As a matter of fact, I even debated not using this passage. The reason I thought maybe we shouldn't use this passage, because you've all heard of this passage. You know? Sometimes we talk about a passage that you've heard and you read about. You kind of, okay, been there, done that. How much longer? And then it's over. No, no. So don't check out this morning, all right? This is a classic passage. How many here this morning have ever heard the story of the prodigal son? Come on. See, almost every hand is going up. And somebody says, I just don't like raising my hand, but I've heard it. So <laughs> I know that most of us here this morning, we have heard the story of the prodigal son, right? But we're going to go there anyhow. What you've got to do is make sure that you don't kind of just drift off because we need to be refreshed in it even if we know it. And some of us, we don't know the story of it or we don't know the story of the second son. We're going to talk about the second son as well because he needed the father's love just as much as the first son. Actually, in this story... Grace and perfectionism collide, and they they come together. So we're going to talk about how that happens. You have this verse there in your notes, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired. This is Peter talking about this in the New Testament. Of this salvation, salvation is this grace that's been given to you. The prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied spoke of, predicted, if you like, the grace that would come to you. The grace that would come to you. That's you and your neighbor. Grace would come to you. They talked about it. Why did they prophesy about it? This is a really important point. They prophesied about it. They talked about it because they didn't have it. Old Testament. God took a long time to make a very, very important point. Until the time when Jesus came, died, and rose again, God was making a point. You know what the point was? The point was this. On our own, we can't keep the law. 
The Old Testament has laws. Of course, you're familiar with the Ten Commandments and there are other laws. He had these laws and he said, on your own, you can't keep them. You need a savior who would keep them and pay the price for your sin. So we had all those years of the law. Was the law bad? Paul says it was not bad. It was good. It showed us that we needed a savior. It showed us we couldn't do it on our own. We said last week that the law was a lot like a mirror. This morning you got up and you looked in the mirror, and the mirror helps us, right? For the most part, the mirror is pretty good. You get in the mirror, it helps us how to fix our hair. It helps us how to put on the makeup. It helps us how to shave, and it shows us if you've got a pimple that we need to squeeze it or we need to put something on it, you know. So the mirror's not bad, right? You get the picture. The mirror is good. It's, it, it helps us. It shows our flaws. But the mirror can't shave me. The mirror can't do my hair. The mirror can't put the makeup on. The mirror can't fix the pimple. The mirror doesn't. It just shows what needs to be changed. That was the law. God brought the law to show us how to live. But guess what? We couldn't do it. Try as hard as we could, we couldn't do it. So Jesus comes and he says, I will fulfill the law to the T. I will keep all the requirements. And because you couldn't fulfill the law, there's a punishment. I will take that punishment in your place. That's grace. And so when we receive what he did for us, we become right with God. Now, every other religion in the world, this is the way it works. If you do certain things, if you keep a certain code, if you pray a certain way, certain times, facing certain directions, if I do this and do that and do this, and do that, and don't do this, and don't do that, maybe eventually I would be good enough to be right with God, or I could be reincarnated to a better life, or I could go to heaven. If I did all those right things enough times, then I would be right with God. But Christianity is not like that. That's all do, 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 do. Christianity is done because of what Jesus did. We don't deserve this no more than Ms. Fibosheth out in the desert all of a sudden is put in right standing with the king and enjoying all the benefits because of what his daddy did. Jesus did this for you. He puts you in right standing with God when you receive it and you look around and say, man, I'm in right standing with God. Because I realize how much he loves me, guess what? The fruit of it or the outcome is I want to live right. So you get it? It's it's the exact opposite of everything else. So my desire to live right comes from a relationship with my God. In Ezekiel, he prophesied this. He said, there's a day coming. The prophet spoke about it. There's a day coming. You know, they longed for you, what you've got. Whoever you are this morning, if you've tasted just a little bit of God's grace today, Moses would have traded places with you. David would have traded places with you. Solomon would have traded. Anybody would have traded places with you just to experience what you have. Because they had, they knew God. They experienced God from time to time. But none of them had God living within them. Because the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He comes and he lives in you. And that's the mystery, is that your spirit and the Holy Spirit are sort of galvanized together. You've become one with him. They didn't have that. They just looked from the mountaintops of prophecy. They said, that's coming. That's coming. That's coming. I wish we could be there. 
They experienced God. They knew about God. And they, they loved God. But you get to be one with God. Wow. Let me see. My Cheryl went out to help with the youth this morning. But let's say there was a book about Cheryl. And in the book about Cheryl, there was a chapter about her amazing cooking ability. Then there was a chapter about her wardrobe. And they had all these picture of all her clothes and all her shoes. And uh, that's a little longer chapter. And they had... <laughs> She's not here this morning, so uh, they had, there's a picture of her wardrobe. Then there's a picture of her heritage, where she grew up, and there was a picture of maybe some of her messages that she's spoken. That was in that book as well, and uh, so you could pick up that book, and you could read it, and you say, oh, you know what? I, I know Cheryl. I, I feel like I know her. I've, have you ever read a book, and you say, I kind of feel like I know that author, and I've, I, I've just read so much about them, but really, you don't know them. You would know about Cheryl, and you'd maybe even experience her teaching when you're there. But as a husband, how many know, I really know Cheryl. There's a different knowing. That's kind of what it's like. The Old Testament had these pictures. They got to see God. But today, we get to be one with him. See, when you open up your heart and say, God, come into my life. He really does come into your life, into your spirit. He's the spirit. And you become one with him. And he says, and I will put my laws on your heart. So no longer is it out there you've got to do this. I'll just put it in your heart. And Jesus said, you can sum it up this way. Love God, love others, and you'll complete the rest. This is what we have today. That's grace. That's really what grace gives to us. There's a great story of grace, of course, and that's the prodigal son. So let's uh, go there, Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is the lost and found chapter. If you have that book open there, you can go there. Uh, There's some stuff that gets lost. Uh, There's a sheep that gets lost. A boy gets lost. Coins get lost. So it's the lost and found chapter of the Bible. Thankfully, everything gets found. And so we're going to go there this morning. The story starts off, well, first of all, let's back up a bit. Jesus is telling the story to Pharisees and scribes. These are the religious nitpicks. They are the religious uh, fault finders. They live by all the rules, and this is the way they live. If you don't keep all the rules, you don't count. And they have a hard time with Jesus because you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is hanging out, it says, with the sinners. He's hanging out with, in today's world, he'd be hanging out with, He'd be hanging out with people that frequented bars, or he'd be hanging out with the mafia, or he'd be hanging out with the gang, or he'd be hanging out with, we would quote unquote, the heathen. That's who he's hanging out with. And they love him. They have this, they, they think he's real, authentic, and they hear truth coming from him, and he, he, he spends time with them. The religious people have a problem with that, and so he tells them some stories. And one of the stories is about this prodigal son. We pick it up in Luke 15, verse 11. He tells a story, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, the younger son, I know it's not fair, the younger son got a third. The other guy would get two thirds. That's just the way it was back then. So he gets a third. And not many days later, I don't know if the dad had to liquidate some stuff, but anyhow, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he went off to a far country. Now, Far, we don't know where he went. But the point is this communication, relationship was severed. 
And our relationship with God could be severed. We don't have to go far geographically, and we could sever our relationship with God. You could be part of a church, part of a community, and have this amazing relationship with God. And then you could walk away from God, be living one tower over, but you're in a faraway land. This guy was in a faraway land, and he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the paws that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, you have to understand, for the people that are listening, they are grossed out. They're going, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. This, what are you telling us? Here is a son in a Jewish home with the pigs, left the covenant people in another land, and to top it all off, instead of investing his money, he squandered all his money. So this is, he's made so many mistakes, and Jesus is driving home a point that this guy is, to their mind, unacceptable, should be rejected and stoned, never welcome back into the community. So he's painting this picture very graphically for them. Our culture, we, we kind of get it, but if you were in their culture, the, the religious people, they're, they're mad. This is causing them to get upset. He goes on to say, but when he came to himself in verse 17, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I'll arise, go to my father, will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. There's one thing about living a life of sin. It does take away your sense of self-worth. Eventually, it robs that worth from you. He rose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, I don't know how far that is, whether that's one block, two blocks, or a mile away, but when he was a long ways off, his father saw him. That means his, means his dad went there and looked for him on a regular basis. He had compassion, and he ran, fell on his neck, and he kissed him. And he said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but the father. Aren't you glad for the buts in the Bible? It just kind of zeroes out what was said beforehand. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put on a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf here, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. What an amazing story. It's a great story. Here's a couple of points. God's grace awakens our sense and leads us to repentance. If you're filling in the blanks, the word you want there is repentance. Repentance means to, means to change your mind. He was awakened to it. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. He was in this place, and all of a sudden he remembered God's goodness, his father's goodness, comparable to God's goodness. It doesn't say in the Bible that the law causes people to change their mind. It says God's goodness leads us to repentance. This guy woke up and said, oh, yeah, my dad. Man, I bet that son said, you know, I treated him like such a jerk. What was I thinking? I took a third of that inheritance. I blew it on prostitutes and, and this type of living. And oh, But my dad, he always treated us really good. And he always treated the servants good. I could just go back and work for him and I'd be better off than this. I'm going to go home. That is grace. It awakens us. God's good. For our picture of God is this mean God in the sky with a big stick. We do something wrong. He's going to zap us. That doesn't lead us towards him. But we have a picture of a loving father. That's grace. And that draws me to him. 
Also, honesty and humility will activate grace. Because he got honest. This guy says, you know what? Here's where I am. I'm humbling myself. I'm coming home and say, Dad, I don't deserve it. Just make me a servant even. I don't deserve any of it. Folks, if we want to experience God's grace, we need honesty and humility. If we live in denial and if we have pride, it's going to nullify the effect of grace. Grace has to be received with honesty and humility. That's why James said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's a story told of two eagles, baby eaglets, that were up on this mountain ledge where the eagle's nest was. These two little eagles got fighting one day. They're not full of fully developed yet and they got fighting so much that they fell out of their nests and instinct took over and they began to flap their wings trying to fly but guess what their wings weren't developed enough and they began to tumble from the sky down towards the earth and the good thing was that their wings were strong enough to at least break the fall they landed with a thud on the valley floor and they said oh my goodness that was really scary we shouldn't have been fighting up there anyhow and so they began to walk through the forest And they came across some other birds in the forest, and they said, you know what? There's somebody else. Let's talk to these people, or these birds. (laughs) They got to talk to the birds. And uh, they said, hey, come with us. Join us. We'll help you out, and you can survive. We'll teach you how to get food and all the rest of it. So they taught them how to scratch with their foot and, and peck with their beak, and they were able to eat food off the land. And they found out that they were living amongst the turkeys. And the turkeys said, well, now you're one of us, and you are a turkey. And so they began to live with the turkeys. But they weren't very happy living as a turkey because they would look over their wings and they'd see there is that mountain and there's the open blue sky and something's just drawing me to that mountain. There's something more to life than eating bugs and herbs or whatever turkeys eat. There's got to be something more to life. And some days were good, but most days were bad and they kind of lived this life. One day, one of the little eaglets heard about an owl that lived in the forest, and they went to visit the owl, and they said to the owl, Owl, wise owl, I just am, my life is terrible, and I really don't know what to do. I have good days, but most of them are bad days. I don't know what to do. And you know what the wise owl said? With a lot of wisdom, the owl says, the catch is, you don't know what to do, Because you don't know who you are. And he said, well, who am I? He said, well, you're not a turkey. That's for sure. You are an eagle. An eagle. You are an eagle. You weren't meant to be here amongst the trees. You were meant to soar as a free bird above the trees. You're royalty. You're the royalty of birds. That's who you are. They said, well, I was told by these turkeys that I could never soar above the tops of the trees. Ah, no, but you're not a turkey. That's your problem. You're an eagle. Flap your wings one more time, and you'll get past these trees, and you'll soar into the heights. So the eaglet said, I will try that. And he flapped his wings once, two, three, and all of a sudden he soared, and he realized, I'm an eagle. You're not a turkey. You're an eagle. Even an enemy like that, you're a turkey. But grace comes along and says, no, 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 you are This is who you are. Don't live this life. Live the life that God's given to you. Father's picture of grace. Number one, the kiss represents forgiveness. He came and he kissed him. And he didn't just give him a little peck on this cheek and that cheek. That culture, Eastern culture, he kissed both cheeks, you know. He embraced him and he kissed him. It says, 
smothered him with kisses is really what he does. Representing forgiveness. Son, I forgive you. Can you, can you picture that son that day? I have this picture in my mind. And maybe on the canvas of your mind this morning, paint this picture however you would do it. Here's the son. He's coming home. And he, he comes over the crest of a hill. And there down the road is the father's estate. Now, he's not wearing an Armani suit. No Rolex watch. No ring. That's all been sold and pawned a long time ago. His clothes are tattered and worn. When he left home, he was GQ. Had all the stuff. The bling bling. It was all happening. He, he, was, he was fit. Now he's malnourished. He's lost weight. His face is gaunt. His clothes are tattered. He smells like pig manure. Ever smell pig manure? It's the worst. We grew up in southern Alberta, you know, farm country. And you could always, we had some of our farming friends that had pigs, and you could always tell when they walked into church. Like, oh, I won't say their names in case this is on the internet and they happen to be listening. But they would walk in, I'd say, oh, so and so. I didn't have to look around. I knew they came because they came. And you can bath and change your clothes and put on cologne, and you still smell like pigs. Any pig farmers here this morning? There's not a one. I'm so surprised. <laughs> But you can't get rid of it. It just kind of gets in your pores. He comes home and he smells like pigs. And he's coming over the crest of the hill. And he's thinking, oh, man, what would you be thinking? Am I going to be rejected? What's my dad going to say? Will he even let me be a servant? I wasted a, a third of the livelihood. And he comes over the hill. And he sees his dad. His dad's running towards him. Now, his dad's not wearing a pair of Nikes and sweats, okay? He's wearing a robe. They didn't have pants back then. It was a robe. And they had to literally lift up their pants to run. That's why Paul said to gird your loins. That's kind of a weird term. It means to, that would mean to lift up your pants to run sort of thing. And it was very humbling to do that. The men didn't do that. You... In rare occasions, would you lift up your, your robe and start running? But this dad is humbling himself, and he's running to his son. Your Lord humbled himself when he left the royalty of heaven to become one of us, to take our penalty. He humbled himself. And this father comes running to him. And here's this, here's this boy, and he sees his dad running to him. And his dad runs over to him, and he's expecting... Maybe a, what did you do, son? But there's none of that. He takes him and he embraces him and he smothers him with kisses. And they walk arm in arm, hand in hand, back to the estate. And I'm sure that conversation would have been like, son, I'm so glad to have you home. How was it? How are you feeling? You look like you need something to eat. You look like you need a good steak. Come on, let's have a barbecue. This is, it. this is grace. He doesn't deserve any of it, right? Meanwhile, the religious people are hearing this and thinking, man, that guy should be punished. He should be stoned. But God's grace is, no, I want to shower my love upon you. He gives him a robe which represents royalty or status. Romans 5, 17, so we get to reign as kings in life. We don't deserve it. But we get to reign as kings in life. I don't know how this works. I really don't have God's grace figured out because I don't think there's a mathematical formula for it. 
I have an analytical background, and I like to analyze things. You know what? This sounds really sick, but I actually liked calculus, okay? I, I loved it. And, uh, but you can't, you can't put grace into a formula. It's too incredible. Here we get to reign in life. Okay, that sounds great, Pastor, but bring it down to terms really today. What would that look like? It would look like what we had last yesterday when my daughter got married. I was so rich. Here's my daughter who has loved God, kept herself for that day. Mary's another young man, kept himself for that day, came from an amazing family. I have a son. I have an extended family given to me. I have friends, family. I felt... It was grace. I felt so rich, but I did nothing to deserve it. I felt like I was reigning in life, not the next life, this life. That's grace. That's what God extends to us. I don't know how it works, but when you embrace grace, it doesn't happen instantly, but it just seems like as your life goes along, the richness begins to unfold into your life. And you think, man, I don't deserve this. Folks, this building is God's grace. If you can't see anything else, look where we are. We're ordinary people. We're sitting in a beautiful, renovated building under the apex of the skyline on some of the most expensive property in all of Canada, and we don't deserve it. Would you agree? But this is God. We're reigning in life. How did that happen? God's grace. We don't deserve it. Yeah. It was just happened through ordinary people. No, it wasn't one individual, one person who made it happen. It was ordinary people working together by God's grace. I've got to wrap this up. And I've got a long ways to go. Number three. <laughs> the king, the ring represents authority and the family bank account. He gave him a ring. Not just any ring. It's the signet ring. They had seals back then. You put the ring into the seal and it basically meant we're good for it. That's like coming home and you wasted a third of your dad's money. Let's say your dad was worth $3 million. He gave you a million bucks. You went out and you, you moved to Hong Kong. You blew it all. You come back as a refugee and your dad says, Hey, welcome home, son. Let's have a party. By the way, here's my PIN number for my bank account. <laughs> what? <laughs> dad, are you nuts? <laughs> I just wasted a third. I, waste, I just blew a million dollars. That's grace. It's undeserved. It doesn't make sense. If we receive grace, look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. God has made all grace come to you in abundance. If we receive it in abundance. Anyhow, that verse is there for you. Unpack it later on. Number four, the sandals represent freedom. Slaves wore, went barefoot back then. The free people had shoes. He restores us to freedom. Let's read Romans 6, 14 out loud together. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Grace is freeing. Wow. The number five, the party represents acceptance and restoration to the family. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, special people. Now, I know what it's like for us when we're away from home. I've had to be away from home for periods of time, and some of you are away from home right now. Your family's back in Asia. Your family's back in Europe or South America. And as Christmas comes on, you're thinking of your family more and more. 
And I know what you think about when you think about your family. Here's what you think about. When we, if, I would go, if I could go home for Christmas, we'd get around the table, we'd play games, we'd be laughing, we'd be cutting up, we'd have our traditions, and we'd have amazing time. You miss that more than anything else when you're away from home, right? It's just being with family, laughing, slapping each other on the back, wrestling with your brother, teasing your sister, uh, hanging out with your dad. That's family. That's life. And of everything that restored to the son, I think this was number one. His dad said, hey, let's have a party. Let's laugh. Let's be merry. I think that's what the son missed the most, more than the ring, more than the robe, more than the sandals. I think he just missed hanging out with family and being merry. And when God reaches out to his grace, he restores us to family. Wow. That's good news. The older son was ticked off because he struggled with perfectionism. He said to his dad, I've worked like a slave for you. I've never, can you, can you get just a hint of self-righteousness here? I never dis- disobeyed one of your commandments, okay? So he's a perfectionist. There's a difference between perfectionism and excellence. Excellence is, I'm going to make it better. Excellence is, I will do the best I can with what I have where I'm at. By the way, folks, that's a good point. That's all God expects of us. Just do the best you can with what you have, where you're at. That's excellence. Because next time you'll do it better. It's continual improvement. But that's not perfectionism. Perfectionism is all about me. If I don't do it perfect, I'm going to be rejected. Where excellence is, I'll do it as unto the Lord. I'll do it unto others. There's a world of a difference. That perfectionism actually drove him away from his family. The party's going on. Daddy goes looking for him. He says, hey, what are you doing out here? The party's inside. He's all that son of yours. He didn't say my brother. He said, that son of yours went and spent all the money on harlots, and now he comes home, and you throw him a party? Dad, you've never done that for me? He says, son, you're here. You could have had a party anytime. Enjoy the benefits of the family. Stop this self-righteous thing. Now, Jesus doesn't finish the story for us. He doesn't tell us where the son goes back in, although the father pursued him, just like he pursued the other son. And we don't know whether, what happened to the other son if they made up. We, we just don't know what happens. The reason I think Jesus does it is because you and I are in that story. And he wants us to come to terms with where we're at. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to download free notes from this message, then visit our website, www.coastalchurch.org.